Okay, let's look at the first map. Okay, this is an unusual version of Dependent Core Rising because it starts out with ignorance, all the way up to stress and suffering. I translate dukkha as stress for several reasons. One is that um, when I was in Thailand one time, I, I knew this American journalist, and he asked me, why is it that Buddhists talk about suffering all the time? Is that a question? So this American journalist was asking me, why is it the Buddhists talk about suffering all the time? I don't have any suffering in my life. And I said, do you have any stress? Oh yeah, lots of stress. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> Two, um, when you get the mind into really deep states of concentration, there is still some stress there. You wouldn't call it suffering, but there is stress. And if you don't recognize that fact, then it's hard to see what's wrong with the concentration or what more needs to be done. So it's good to have in mind, okay, there's not necessarily heavy suffering at that point. It can be something very subtle, but it's there and you want to look for it. And then the third reason is it's very hard to romanticize stress. We can romanticize our suffering and get quite attached to it. But nobody likes stress. I don't know any songs about stress. <laughs> okay. However, this is where this is where we're going to pick it up. This the this, the beginning part that goes from ignorance down to stress. We'll be talking about that at the end of the retreat um, when we start talking about the four noble truths. But here, I'd like to pick up the fact that he says stress leads to conviction. Conviction leads to joy. Joy leads to rapture. Rapture leads to calm. Calm leads to, leads to pleasure. Pleasure leads to concentration. Concentration leads to knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be. And that leads to disenchantment. Disenchantment leads to dispassion. Dispassion to release. And then finally to knowledge of the ending. And the, uh, basically knowledge of the ending of stress. So, these are some of the ways in which the mind gets started from the fact that there is stress in your life and then how you get to the end of stress. And the big leap is between how does stress give rise to conviction. And for that it's good to look at passage number two. So what is the result of stress? There's a case in which a person overcome with pain, his or her mind exhausted, grieves, mourns, laments, beats his breast and becomes just bewildered. In other words, you get bewildered. We, we suffer in life and we don't know why the hell is this happening. I mean, this starts at a very early age. You know, kids feel pain and they don't know why. They just know they don't like it. Where is this coming from? So we're bewildered by the stress. And then when we're overcome, we ask, we begin to come to search outside. Who knows a way to stop this? In the beginning, you go running to mama. If mama doesn't work, then you try daddy. But you're always looking for somebody to make the stress go away. So this, this is our, sort of our deepest reaction to the fact that whenever there's pain, whenever we're upset by something, one, we're bewildered by it, and two, we want to find somebody who can help us get out of it. And so what the Buddha is offering in his, in his teaching is, okay, here's someone you can trust to tell you how to get out of suffering. It's in response to that. And it's to how to overcome the bewilderment by understanding what is actually the problem there. So this will involve, as we'll see as we get into some of the other maps, you find somebody that you can trust that can give you an idea of what, how to get beyond the stress. And there's some people who say, well, you know, you know, there's some higher power that'll take care of it for you, or there's some, you know, something else will take care of for you. But here's the Buddha saying, okay, it's going to go back to your actions. And you have to be convinced of what they say. Okay, this is, you know, the Buddha really knows what he's talking about, or this person knows what he or she is talking about. That instead of looking outside for the solution, we have to look inside, and we're going to be able to solve it through our own actions. So the proper search is to, is to find someone to give us the proper analysis of suffering and give us the path, the correct path out. So what is conviction? Conviction is basically a matter of what you believe, who you believe, and what you do in response. And in this particular case, the Buddha is going to recommend that you believe or you take as a working hypothesis. And this is what belief is in, in, in Buddhism. It's not that you sort of tell, okay, I 100% believe in this, I have no doubts at all. The Buddha said, you're going to have doubts until you have your first taste of awakening. But until then, you take this as a working hypothesis, that your actions do make the difference between suffering and not suffering, the first principle. And the actions can have results that do not end with just this lifetime. 
and also that, that there's some of the things that you can't really take the teaching on karma and separate it from the teaching on rebirth. Because otherwise there, there's lots of pains that come to little kids early in life and you, you can't explain them through their actions. There's nothing the little kid has done to say to deserve suddenly having something drop on him. But it can be explained in the results of you know, some, some action in a previous lifetime. And then secondly, there's a lot of things we, we see a lot of people in life who do quite well even though they've been breaking all the precepts. The Buddha himself gives an example. He says, you know, someone goes out and kills the enemy of a king, the king's going to reward him. You go out and you tell a, an amusing lie to the king, the king gets, likes that and rewards you. Um, you go and have sex with the wives of the king's enemy, the king's going to like it. It will reward you. You go down all the, all the, all the precepts. There are ways of breaking the precepts so they're going to get you rewarded in this lifetime. The Buddha is basically saying, take as a working hypothesis that okay, your actions do make the difference between suffering and not suffering, and there have been actions that are, whose results you're experiencing now that come from before your birth, and some of your actions are going to give the results after you passed away. That's what he asks you to take as a working hypothesis. So the question of who you believe, you believe in the Buddha and, the noble, and the, his noble disciples. And what you do in response is that you develop virtue. You start following the precepts. The precepts against killing, stealing, illicit sex, the precept against lying, precept against taking, um, taking intoxicants. We'll get into more detail on, on virtue when we go on to, on down to the second map on passage number six. So as you lead a life based on virtue, then there comes the joy of lack of remorse. In other words, you look at your actions and there's no way that you don't have any way of criticizing yourself for having acted on unskillful intentions. You may have unskillful intentions, but you learn to hold yourself back. But you look at what you've done, you look at your effect on the kind of life you've been leading, and that gives rise to a sense of joy. Now this joy then becomes the basis for concentration, which is covered on, the, on this map under joy, rapture, and calm and pleasure, finally leading to concentration. Because if you know that you've harmed somebody, either you get into a lot of remorse over it, or else you try to deny that you actually did the harm, or that anyone was harmed, or the person really matters. And that kind of denial gets in the way of any kind of insight in your concentration. The Buddha doesn't say it's impossible to get into concentration without virtue. We've seen lots of cases of people with no virtue getting into strong concentration. But, he says, that kind of concentration is not going to lead to discernment because it's based on dishonesty. You're putting up walls in your mind about things that I don't want to think about or that I refuse to admit that caused harm. That kind of denial will make the concentration dishonest. And as the concentration becomes dishonest, then it can't lead to true insight. However, if the concentration is based on virtue, then you be, it's, the mind is open to what is actually going on and it begins to see things as they actually come to be, which is what this knowledge and vision of things as they are. And particularly, you see them in terms of, the Buddha has a fivefold analysis for how you deal with things coming up in the mind. One is you want to see their origination, what causes them to come. Say, for instance, when anger comes. You want to be there at the moment when the, when the first impulse toward anger comes up, so you can see exactly what sparked it. Because sometimes it's just indigestion, and you've got a stomach ache, and then you, get, then you say, well, that person over there is a bad person, and then you go, <laughs> I mean, all too often that's what it is. So you want to see what, what causes it to come. You also want to see when it goes, because sometimes we think that anger is monolithic, and it will tell us, if you don't give in to me now, we're just going to, the pressure is going to get more and more and more, and finally we'll be able to stand it. That's a lie. The pressure comes, excuse me, the anger comes and the anger goes. But the problem is that when the anger comes, it stirs up a few hormones in our body. And then even when it's gone, the hormones are still there. We say, well, I must still be angry, and so you stir it up again. And that way you keep bringing it on, thinking and making it more monolithic than it actually is. So one of the ways of getting past it is to see this actually comes and then it goes. I don't know if I've told you the story about Jakun Ubali. He was a monk in Bangkok. And he was reputed to have a fairly sharp tongue. And as someone said, there, you know, the, the rich people in Bangkok who, who were so powerful that nobody in the house dared to criticize them, they, they would go and see Jokunabali to get, somebody, to get some criticism. 
there was this one time this one woman came and her, her son had died. It was her only son. He died when he was in his 20s and she was just really, really upset. She's like, I can't think of anything else. I've just been grieving about him ever since he died. He looked at her and he said, you're just saying that to show off to other people. And she got really upset. She left. She didn't even bow down. She just got up and left. Went home. All she could think about was how a horrible person Joko Nepali was. And after about an hour of this, she realized she hadn't thought of her son for one second during that hour. <laughs> so she went back, she bowed down. <laughs> now, I don't recommend that treatment very often, but in her case, apparently, it, was, it worked. Okay. So you have to say, okay, these things come and they go. When they come, you want to see what comes with them, what causes them. Then you want to look at the allure. What is this about this that I find so attractive? Why do I like my anger? Why do I like my lust? Why do I like my greed? What pulls me toward them? And then you can compare that with the drawbacks. And when, if you really see what's pulled you toward it, and you really see what the drawbacks are, then the mind develops dispassion, which is what follows here. You get disenchantment, and then dis dispassion. The word disenchantment here actually means that you are tired of feeding on this. And this relates to the Buddha's teachings on clinging. He says, we suffer, our suffering is clinging. We cling to things because we feel that if we let go, we're going to be lost. That by clinging, we're going to find happiness. And so we fabricate all kinds of things in the mind. We keep on coming up with different emotions, different thoughts, different attitudes. And we keep these things, and these things keep coming up and up, and we feed off of them. That's the clinging. So if we can develop a sense that I've had enough of this, it's like you know, reading, the, reading the label on Hostess Twinkies. <laughs> They say, oh, I've been putting chemicals in my body all my life. Nah. <laughs> they have this, I, I don't want this anymore. That's when you let it aside. And that's, when you, that's, that's how you develop dispassion. And it's through dispassion for these things that we, do, that we gain release. In other words, it's our passion that causes us to cling and to fabricate the things that we're going to cling to. If we don't have that passion, then the, these things are not going to be there. We're just going to, get, we're just going to stop creating them. And that's when we get released from them. We're, we, we're trapped, not because they are trapping us, but we're trapped because we're hold on. The image they have in the canon is of the fire. They say fire burns because the fire element grabs hold of the fuel. And it's stuck on the fuel. That's why it continues to burn. I mean, if you ever take a stick with a flame at the end of it and you try to shake the flame off the stick, it won't go. It, it holds on. So they said the fire actually fire element clings to the fuel, and it's trapped as a result. And when it, when it goes out, it lets go. It lets go. And so this is a case of not where the, the fuel is not trapping, is not clinging to the fire, it's the fire clinging to the fuel. And so the image there is basically, the reason we're trapped in these things is because we're holding on. It's when we let go, that's when we get freed. Well, we feel that it's worth it. It's okay, I know there are these drawbacks, but I'm going to go for it anyhow. I mean, you look at addiction, and people know, you know that what they're addicted to is bad, but there's part of the mind that says it's worth it, and they've been listening to that part. Well, first you need to give the mind something alternative to cling to, and this is one of the reasons why the Buddha has you practice concentration, so you get a sense of well-being, independent of whatever else you've been, con been clinging to, and you can see, okay, this pleasure that comes from concentration is, has much less in terms of drawbacks. It's not harming me, it's not harming anybody else, it's free. All I have to do is breathe. And if I know how to breathe and focus on my breath properly, I get a sense of pleasure. And so if it's harmless, it's free. Why should I go for these things that are going to cost money and are going to cause harm? So it puts you in a position where you have a different perspective on what you've been holding on to. Because the Buddha said, if you don't have this pleasure, then no matter how much you see the drawbacks of sensual pleasures, you're always going to go back. How much practice? Well, about 42. <laughs> you just keep practicing. <laughs> okay, and then when the mind lets go. Okay, that's when you realize, okay, the mind has been totally released. That's how you are released from suffering. Now to go into a little bit more detail on some of these connections here. Passage number four. Excuse me, let's look at passage three first. Passage three first, basically, these are five reflections that, were, that are um, chanted in almost every monastery, Theravada monastery around the world almost every day. 
I'm subject to aging, haven't gone beyond aging. I'm subject to illness, subject to death. I will grow different, separate from all that is dear and appealing to me. Okay, this is basically showing you okay, there is suffering built into the fact that you've got a body. This body is going to age. There's suffering built into the fact that you live in a world where people come together and they go apart. And if you stop right there, what you'd have would be the emotion that in Buddhism is called Sangvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A. -E um, and it's basically a sense of the futility and meaninglessness of life as is ordinarily lived. In other words, we look for pleasure in the, in the body, we look for pleasure in our relationships, but it's all going to end. And sometimes it doesn't end nicely. Sometimes it can end in really bad terms. So that's another way of looking at suffering and also trying to give rise to say there must be a way out. Got to find a way out. Which is provided by the fifth reflection. This is where conviction comes in. It's also called basada. The word for conviction is sata, S-A-D-D-H-A. But there's also a quality called basada, P-A-S-A-D-A, which basically means confidence. There's got to be a way out. And that combination of sangwega and basada, that's one of the sort of the, kind of the basic emotional drive of Buddhism, seeing that life is pretty meaningless as is ordinarily lived. I'd like to get out, and then realizing I, there is a way out. I mean, you think about the traditional story of the, the Buddha's life. This is not found in the canon, but it's it's in at least not with reference to our Buddha, but they tell about other Buddhas in the past, saying they, they see an old person, a sick person, and a dead person, and then a forest contemplative. And this is how they leave home. Basically say, okay, I'm subject to aging, I'm subject to illness like this person, I'm subject to death like that person. But you see the forest mendicant, you say, well, this must be the way out. These are the people who can kind of contemplate and find their way out of all this. And so here the basada is, I'm the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do, for good or for evil, to that will I fall heir. So it's through your actions that we have the way out. That's what the conviction is. If we make our actions more skillful, there will be good results coming from it. Now what the Buddha is saying, it goes more beyond just good results. We can actually find a way to put an end to suffering through our own actions. So that leads to passage four, which is heedfulness. It's similar, very similar. It's, no, it's a different poly word. It's, um, conviction is sata, S-A-D-D-H-A, and this was basada. Um, and usually they talk about the two together. No, it doesn't necessarily. Right, it usually does. And the Buddha's not saying this is inevitable, but he says it's the fact that we are suffering, that's what reminds us, okay, we need some conviction, there's got to be a way out. This is what leads us to look for a way out. If we're not... This is the best outcome of stress, yeah. <laughs> we're talking about the ideal case here. <laughs> no, none of these things are inevitable. If it were inevitable, there would be no way out. find that all of these maps have some blanks, and it's, you can put the maps together and you begin to see how some of the blanks get filled in, and that's why some of these, we have these alternative passages here, also to fill in some of the blanks. Okay. Yes? Yeah, um, 
It's the problem is with is with the Pali word for arbitrator, and also it sounds like refuge. But um, when you actually look at how the word is used in in, in different contexts in Pali, they they use it to, to refer to someone who actually basically passes judgment on people. That's the arbitrator. In other words, this is this is what this is what's passing judgment on you. It's not like there's some police agent up up there is. You know, signing okay with in, in a book of karma, but it's just your actions themselves are what determine where you're going to go. Some people are ready and some people are not. But you ask them, do you want to stay in this state? At least here somebody's offering a way out. And some people say, well, I don't trust anybody anymore. Um, say, okay, well, come back to me when you're ready to trust somebody. <laughs> I always thought Sangwe would be a great name for a grunge band. <laughs> And I, I ran into someone one time who said you know, they had been in a really bad depression. And I, you know, back in the 90s, I wrote an article on Sangbega and Basada, and they said that article was actually got them out of their depression. I don't think it was so much the article; it was they were ready for it. Because um, you look in the, in the Buddhist teachings, there are people. You know, the Buddha gives a teaching, and they say, "Well, I, oh, that, I hope that's true," and then they walk away. So you can't. There's, there's no surefire, you know silver bullet for everybody. But it's when people have I'd say, okay, I've had enough of this, dispress this depression, this is not getting me anywhere. Let's see what's good is out there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, the reason you hold on is because you feel that you're afraid of being deceived. You say, well, you know, I see through everything, I don't want to be fooled again. There's a great science fiction story, I've forgotten the author. It's about this um, civilization in another corner of the universe, and they're extremely advanced. And they start sending messages to people's brains on Earth about how you could make light a lot more efficient, um, nicer, and then they keep, and they keep sending more and more information about how to make technological advances. And so life on Earth becomes really, really good, and everybody trusts all the messages that are coming from this place. And then the message is coming through is that we are actually trapped in our part of the universe. We created this defense around our section because there was this evil power that was trying to take over us. So we made it so that nobody could come in. Now we're realizing that we're going to die as a result of this. We can't get out. So now we're depending on you to come and help get us out of this. And so they get these people on a, on a spaceship and they go out and they have all the best scientists on Earth are there. And there's this one old cleaning lady who's brought on. And turns out that she, you know they had found her when she was in a suicidal mood, and so they they said, okay, we've got a mission for you. She said, well, this sounds like this is something good, so she goes along with them. And then as they approach the the barrier that this other civilization has built, they got to have a meeting. Everybody on the spaceship is there, including the clean, cleaning lady. And they go through all the best scientists on Earth, and they have all their ways of solving this problem of this shield that this other civilization has built around itself. And the chief scientist goes through and he demolishes all the theories they have. And all of a sudden everything on the, on the, on the, on the spaceship just stops working. Because it was, it was based on the fact that everybody believed in it. And then they take the cleaning lady and they send her a little pod and it goes right through the barrier. Because at that point she doesn't believe in anything. <laughs> so she destroys the barrier. <laughs> So there's that part to depression. You say, well, at least I'm not going to be deluded by anything. And that's what keeps you from being willing to say, well, maybe there is a way out. Okay. So heedfulness is what follows on 
this um, passage number three, as you realize, okay, your actions make a difference. Okay, the quality of heedfulness means that you realize, okay, my actions make a big enough difference, I've got to be really careful about what I do. That's based on the one hand, there's a sense of danger. If I don't act skillfully, they're going to be dangerous. However, if I do act skillfully, I can get past those dangers. This is what heedfulness implies. Barry Lopez, who wrote a book, um, Arctic Dreams, was talking about his spending his time with the native natives up in Alaska. And there was a quality, he said, that they all had. He, had, he couldn't think of a good English term. But he was kind of working around the, the quality. And it sounded to me like what they're talking about was heedfulness, realizing, okay, we live in a world, there are dangers on all sides, but you don't let that get you, to, get you down. You just try to prepare as best you can. And you have a good humor about it at the same time. And as the Buddha said, this is the basis for all skillful qualities. It's not that we're innately good or innately bad. That we do good things because we realize, okay, by doing good things, I'm going to benefit or there will be benefit for people I love. You realize that it's worth putting in the effort to try to develop skill. Then passage number five explains the connection between virtue and, and joy. As I said, you start with skillful virtues, have freedom from remorse as their purpose. And what is the purpose of freedom from remorse? What is this reward? Freedom from remorse has joy. Okay, you can look it back in your actions and say, there's nobody I've harmed. And you can feel good about it. And that joy is what gives you the basis for concentration. So that basically covers the first map. Are there any questions on any of the connections or any of the factors that I haven't explained yet? It's you're being careful about your actions, but also thinking about my actions have consequences. Therefore, I have to be very careful not to act in any harmful ways. They've done studies of people who are have mastered a particular physical or manual skill. And we're not talking about just good, being good at it, but being extremely good at it. And in every case, they have a very alive sense that okay, if they don't master the skill, there's going to be a lot of problems. If they do master the skill, they'll be able to avoid those problems. So they put a lot of t time and attention into doing it really well. That's heedfulness. Yes? I think it's, he's talking about the steps that they go through. Why would you have joy from you know, taking a precept? It's when you realize, okay, I can look back at my actions, I haven't harmed anybody. That's what, that's what gives you some joy. because they can reflect. And not everybody feels this way. You have some sociopaths who don't feel this way. But most people who have had, had a, you know, a good upbringing, have lived in a family, realize the extent to which you know, their happiness depends on the happiness of other people. And it's kind of a natural willingness. I read an article recently about how the happiest people in the world were the ones who did chores when they were children. In other words, they actually helped around the house. And this, the group had done an analysis of traditional societies versus more modern societies. 
And in the traditional society, you know, say, you know, the little three-year-old son sees his mother doing something, I want to help with that. The mother will actually, okay, do this. And put up with the fact, excuse me, put up with the fact that, the, you know, the kid's going to make some mistakes. But is patient enough with the kid so it gets her so the kid can actually do the help around the house. And then he becomes more, or she, the little kid, if she's a little girl, will become more happy to help around what the parents are doing. And then they looked at more modern societies where the, the parents are kind of frazzled already. And they want to get the work done quickly. They say, no, go away, go, go look at your iPad, go look at your computer, um, let mommy do her work. And the kids grow up and they, they're lacking this quality of, you know, their, their altruistic side has been basically stunted. So there's something about you, know, a little human being, most cases, that want, who wants to help. There's a kind of a sense of fellow feeling. There's that um, passage where King Basenadian is, is in his palace one-on-one -on -one with his queen. It's one of my favorite passages in the Pali Canon, because it's so typical of kings. Um, he turns to her at one moment and says, is there anyone you love more than yourself? And you know what he's thinking, she, he wants her to say, yes, your majesty, you, I love you more than myself. But you know, she's Queen Malika and she's no fool. He says, no, there's nobody I love more than myself, and how about you? <laughs> he has to admit, well, no, I guess there's nobody I love more than myself. <laughs> and so that's the end of that scene. Um, so the king goes down to see the Buddha and tells him the conversation. And the Buddha says, you know, she's right. You could search the whole world and not find anybody that you love more than yourself. At the same time, everybody else there loves themselves just as fiercely. And the conclusion he draws is not that it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. His conclusion is never harm anybody. Because basically, if you're looking for happiness, you want it to last. Your happiness cannot depend on other people's harm. Because if they can do anything to end your happiness, they will. One. And two, there's this, some people have this innate sense of fairness. I mean, if I'm going to look after my happiness, why should I harm somebody else? It's interesting that this, there's almost the identical message is given in the same collection. This is called the Udana. There's another passage where a group of boys are hitting a snake with a stick. And the Buddha comes across to me and says, you know, do you want happiness? Yes. Well, why are you causing pain to that? So there's this kind of innate sense of fairness if you want to be happy. But there's also the calculation, you know, like if I want happiness, and my happiness depends on my, my, my neighbor's misery, my neighbor is not going to stand for it, and my neighbor is going to do something. So one of those two reasons. Yes. the dish breaks, you're not broken, right? There is a separateness. And it, there are states of consciousness where you do, uh, states of concentration where you do feel a kind of interconnectedness with everything. But that's not the insight that we're trying to get to. The insight we're trying to get to actually is how separate things are. So that you can step back and look at even events in your own mind and see them as separate from your awareness. And that's how you can let go of unskillful things. So there's the state. The teachings on interconnectedness are basically in the Mahayana, but not in not in the in the original teachings. The Buddha talks about you know, there are states of oneness, but he says those are those two are stressful. They're inconstant, and those are things you have to go beyond. There was a retreat that a John Sawat gave when he was in in Massachusetts one time, and there was this guy who was brand new to Buddhism, and Obviously, he was not doing too well in the retreat. He says, um, now, why don't you Buddhists have a god? <laughs> then you can have this sense that there's somebody out there looking after you. That even if your meditation is going poorly, there's somebody out there going to help you. And John Sawat had a really interesting answer that I hadn't expected at all. He said, if there were a god who could decree that when I take a, a mouthful of food, everybody in the world gets full, I would bow down to that god. But it ain't going to happen. 
I mean, this is one of the ways we really do see your separateness. I mean, you're feeding, other people don't get full. talks about noble friendship, he says there are four qualities you would look for in a friend like that. Um, the person is virtuous, well, me, has conviction, is virtuous, generous, and is wise. And you try to emulate those qualities in that person, so you see how they're embodied. But it's, I mean, you have to do the work of emulation yourself. The friend is not going to do, the, can, cannot do that part for you. But you need you need you need some good examples around you. If you all the way, all you can see in the world is just miserable, you know, it's greedy people. It's very easy to say, well, if everybody else is greedy, I'm going to be greedy too. And in the Buddha's own case, he said, if it weren't for him, we would have no idea that there was a path out of suffering. So we owe that much to him. Yes. Okay, the Buddha says you to remind yourself, okay, this was a mistake I made, and don't deny it, and then you resolve not to repeat the mistake. I mean, there's no way you can go back and undo things in the past. One of the things I like about Buddhism is that it was one of the few religions I know that was founded by somebody who actually had started out imperfect, and acknowledged the fact, so he knows what it's like to be imperfect. But then, okay, you resolve not to repeat the mistake, and then you spread goodwill in all directions. Goodwill to the people you harmed. Goodwill to yourself, so you're not beating yourself up. And then finally, goodwill for all the people you're going to be dealing with. As a way of reminding yourself, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to repeat that mistake. There's a question here. Nirvana. It doesn't have a pair. No, Nirvana. Nippon. Okay, that was the first major map. Now we have 15 minutes to get started on the second one. Let's get started a little bit at least. Okay. This particular map is the Buddha's way of introducing the Four Noble Truths. We talk about, in, this, in the first map we talked about going from stress to conviction. In some of the later talks, later maps we were talking about going through from stress to finding someone that you trust and then listening to the Dharma from that person then giving rise to conviction. And this is the kind of Dharma that person would teach. He's going to take Ubali from just sitting there to becoming a, a noble disciple. Okay, first he gives a talk on giving, then he gives a talk on virtue, then he gives a talk on heaven, then he proclaims the drawbacks, degradation, and defilement in sensuality, and the rewards of renunciation. Okay, then when he knew that Ubali, the householder, was of ready mind, malleable mind, unhindered mind, exalted mind, exultant mind, confident mind, he proclaimed to him the distinctive teachings of the awakened ones. Stress, origination, its origination, its cessation, and the path to its cessation. Just as a white cloth with stains removed would rightly take a dye, in the same way there arose to a bali, the household, in that very seat, the dustless, stainless dharma eye, whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. Then having seen the dharma, having reached the dharma, known the dharma, gained a footing in the dharma, Having crossed over and beyond doubt, having no more questioning, he gained fearlessness and was independent of others with regard to the teacher's message. 
In other words, he gains his first taste of awakening, what they call stream entry. So the, the map here is in that series of talks the Buddha gives. This graduated talk is um, mentioned several places in the canon. It's always the same order, giving, virtue, heaven, the drawbacks of sensuality, the rewards of renunciation, and then finally the Four Noble Truths. Nowhere do we ever have a, a record of what those talks were. It's one of those strange gaps in the count. You'd think that at least somebody would have thought, let's, let's copy this down. <laughs> However, it is possible to see the, the Buddhist teachings on these different topics and kind of, kind of assemble an, an idea of what that talk might have been. So the first one is giving, generosity. Generosity is probably the most basic experience of goodness you have in your life. You know, someone else is generous with you, you appreciate that. If Then you find the joy in being generous with other people. Um, it's interesting when the Buddha talks about generosity, there was a king who came to see him one time and asked, you know, where should a gift be given? Now this king had heard Brahmins say, give a gift to the Brahmins. And the Jains say, give a gift to the Jains. And so he's expecting the Buddha to say, give a gift to the Buddhists. You know? But the Buddha didn't say that. He said, give where you feel inspired, or you think that it would be well used. In other words, you are free to give anywhere you want, to whomever you want. No constraints, no, no dana talks. The Buddha didn't, you know, at the end of a meditation retreat, he didn't say, by the way, dana is a 2,500-year-old tradition. <laughs> The Dana talk is a 60-year-old tradition, um, <laughs> and the Buddha was very careful about not pressuring people into giving. In fact, when the monks are asked, you know, where should a gift be given, or I, I have this gift, where, to whom should I give it? We can't say, give to X, give to Y. We're supposed to say, give where you feel inspired, where you feel that it would be well used or well taken care of. In other words, no pressure at all. And I think one of the reasons behind this is that when you give something, to, the Buddha's talking here about voluntarily giving, i.e. not Christmas presents or birthday presents, but when you just feel out of the goodness of your heart, you want to give something. That's your first experience of freedom of choice. You could have eaten it yourself, you could have used it yourself, but you decide, no, I'm going to give it to somebody else. And that's your first re realization, okay, I, do, I, can, I am free to choose, either to follow my desires or, or follow one set of desires over another set of desires. And so the Buddha wants that freedom to be protected because that principle of freedom of choice, or that the fact that you can make choices, is one of the basic principles of karma. You know, remember, it, things are not determined by the past. You ha do have some choice in the present as how you're going to shape not only the future, but also you're going to be shaping the present moment by your decisions in the present moment. So you want to be conscious of the fact that you do have that choice. When I was a kid, um, we moved from the farm to a little town, and all of a sudden I found myself within biking distance of a, of a store. And this was the first time we'd been close enough to a store could I actually get on a bike and hop down. And I also had, a, had um, an allowance. So I went down to the store one time, and I was poking around the store, I found an egg separator. I'd seen my mother, you know, separating eggs. She, my mother was a real baker. And I was seeing her separate eggs, you know, it took a lot of time and effort on her part. So I thought, oh, she'd probably like an egg separator. So it was, what, you know, 20 cents or something, so I bought it, gave it to her. And I, and I look back on that, it's probably the first time, just out of, you know, goodness of my heart, I decided, okay, I want to give something. It, was, it wasn't her birthday, it wasn't anything, I just gave her an egg separator. And years later, after she died, we were going through her stuff, and there was the egg separator. And she had made the mistake of putting it in a dishwasher one time, and it kind of melted. Um, but, she <laughs> but she kept it anyhow. I think I know why. So that, I, think, I think it's a good exercise. They actually have this exercise that's called recollection of your generosity. When you're feeling down about yourself, you think about it, okay, what was the first time I gave a gift? Not because I had to, but because I wanted to. And think about the quality of mind and the quality of the feeling that goes along with that. So the Buddha wants to protect that sense of freedom of choice, which is why we have this 
the culture around generosity is that you don't force people to give things. However, when people ask him where, when a gift is given, does it give the best results, then the Buddha would say, okay, this, if you want to approach generosity as a skill, this is how you develop it as a skill. And I think that the Buddha places this emphasis on generosity um, because he felt that you know, people who are stingy, one, he says a stingy person cannot attain jhana, a stingy person cannot attain awakening. So it's a very, one of these basic prerequisites for even getting anywhere in the, pra in the practice. And he didn't seem to be that interested in teaching people who had, couldn't be persuaded of the importance of generosity. There was a case in the canon where one of the monks is teaching a prince, and the prince is a materialist. In other words, he believes that there's nobody, there's, no, there's nothing to a human being aside from the body. And he talks about these different quote-unquote scientific experiments he did to prove it. Do you know that passage? Um, apparently, as a, as a prince, he was able to, he had to punish people. And so he decided, well, let's use the punishment for scientific experiments. It sounds kind of Nazi-ish. Um, <laughs> and so they would kill people in different ways to see if they could catch the spirit leaving the body. Um, one of them was they would put a person in a big jar and seal it up, and then would heat the jar over fire until they realized like, the person must be dead now. And then they would very carefully unfold the seal to see if they could see anything come out. Well, no. <laughs> there was another time where they weighed the person before before they killed him, and then they killed him in a way that you know there was no nothing was taken away from the body. I think they used a wire and strangled the guy, and then they weighed him afterwards. And he didn't weigh less. So he said, okay, I don't believe there's anything to a human being aside from the body. When you die, there's nothing. Well, the, the monk is able to talk to the prince and actually convince him that, you know, that maybe rebirth is possible and that there are other worlds. But then the prince says, okay, from now I'm going to be generous. But he, he gives just miserable things. And he, gives, and he doesn't even do it himself. And he gives one of his men as a sign, okay, when monks come by, place, you know, old rice and leftover food in their bowls. And the man, as, as he's placing the old rice and leftover food in his bowls, and he says, he's making this vow out loud, he says, okay, may, may this be the last time I have anything to do with this prince in this lifetime. I don't want to have anything more to him in the future. So word of this gets to the prince. And so the prince says, well, why do you say this? He said, well, this kind of food, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't eat it yourself. And the cloth you have me give is the kind you wouldn't even want to touch with your foot. Why should I feel proud about this generosity? And so the, the prince changes his mind and then he gives good food and gives good cloth. And then they say at the very end, the, the man who gave the, was doing the giving for the prince gets reborn in a really nice palace in heaven, whereas the prince gets born into an empty palace with nothing. <laughs> so, so the Buddha says that the quality of mind that you know, wants to be generous is one that should be encouraged. And if, it's, if you can't give rise to it, he probably wouldn't want to teach you, which I think is interesting. The first requisite for actually hearing the Dharma is you're willing to be talked into seeing how generous, generosity is important. Okay. Now if you approach it as a, oh, I don't have any time. So after the talk, after the lunch, we'll start talking about how we approach generosity as a skill. Do you have any questions before we break for lunch? Yes. Beneficial clinging? There's lots. I mean, cling to the path, cling to your virtue, um, cling to right view. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the Buddha talks about four kinds of clinging. There's clinging to habits and practices, there's clinging to views, clinging to sensuality, and then clinging to um, doctrines of the self. And what you want to cling to, uh, and there are skillful versions of three of those. Skillful versions of clinging to views, i.e. you cling to right view. Skillful versions of habits and practices, you cling to the precepts, you cling to the practice of concentration. Um, skillful doctrines of the self, in other words, yourself as someone who is competent, someone who is responsible, 
capable of doing the path, someone who has love for himself or herself, that, that you really would want the best for yourself. Those are the kinds of selves that the Buddha would have you cultivate. It's clinging to sensuality that the Buddha doesn't have any, 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 any good word for. Now, for sensuality here, it doesn't mean nice things. It means our tendency to be fascinated with our sensual fantasies. Now, you can be sitting here thinking about pizza. You know, it's almost time for lunch, you know. <laughs> and you can think about, what, what kind of toppings would I like? And which store down there has the best pizza? And you know, what kind of toppings do I want in pizza? And say, no, I don't like that. How about? And then you can think about this, you, you know, variations on the pizza for half an hour. That's sensuality. It's, it's your fascination with your sensual fantasies. I mean, the actual pizza takes, what, 10, 15 minutes to, to eat? But you can fantasize it for an hour before, and you can fantasize it for a half an hour afterwards. That's what restaurant reviews are all about. <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff the Buddha would say, don't cling. But there are, there are skillful things to cling to. Yes? No, it's not. The Buddha makes a distinction between what he calls sensual pleasure and the pleasure of form. And the form here is just how you feel the body from within. Whereas sensual pleasure would have to be your fascination with nice sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations outside. It's on the external level, yeah. And it's, I mean, when they talk about tactile sensations, it's things that come and touch you, not the inside ones. Okay, let's break for lunch. We'll be back here at one for another meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.